right, let's do this. Welcome to Art Holes. My name is Michael Anthony, and this is the podcast about art and art history with someone who has absolutely no authority to speak on these topics. If you're just joining the show, welcome. Um, Here's the deal. Not only do I have no background in any of this stuff, I would say I spent most of my entire life avoiding it. And instead of learning in moderation, I am just going to go artist by artist, and we are going to learn a ton and hopefully have some fun along the way. If you caught the first series on Picasso's origin story, uh, glad to have you back. You know exactly what you're getting into. I do have a very minor clarification to make about something I said in the last episode about Gertrude Stein, but I will save that until the end of this episode for those of you who care. So let's jump right in. Uh, guys, Jackson Pollock. Wow, uh, this one is a roller coaster. Uh, Jackson Pollock was another of those artists who I'd heard of his name but knew next to nothing about. And I'm from New York, and I think I knew he was associated with New York somehow. And I knew there was an Ed Harris movie back in, I think it was 2000. I didn't see it, didn't care. The teenage me was more interested in habitual masturbation and watching Con Air over and over again. And in an independent movie about art history didn't really fit into those plans. And I wasn't like a young teenager at that point either. I was like 18. It was very sad. Before we start, I want to list my sources for Pollock's story. This is not including the research for the weird asides. Uh, Jackson Pollock, An American Saga by Stephen Nypha and Gregory White-Smith, uh, which actually won the Pulitzer Prize. I don't think I've read a Pulitzer Prize winning book since high school, and it was crazy. The second is Jackson Pollock by Ellen Landau and Love Affair, a memoir of Jackson Pollock by Ruth Kligman. And in the last series, I gave some descriptions and context up front about the author, you know, just, to, just to provide a little bit of background, but I can't do that here. We need to talk about that stuff at the end for reasons that will be clear way later on. So let's get going with our story. Let's set the scene a little bit. Our story begins in a time in history that I feel as though I would least like to live. The American West in the 1870s. There is some serious tire horse to a stump Oregon Trail level nonsense happening right now. I hated that game. I hate Western movies. I never saw the movie Tombstone and I never will. I don't care how good it is. I hate the Old West. Just imagine what everyone's mouth smelled like back then. It's just hot tooth decay and beef jerky. And I'm white. I can't even imagine what it would be like for a person of color back then. You were just in a constant state of ashiness and everybody wanted to kill you. I hate that people cared so much about hats back then. If someone knocked off your cowboy hat, they might have to die. I have anxiety. I don't want to have to worry about hat repercussions. No joke, I had to read about a wagon that got unhitched while people tried to ford a river. Oh, and don't worry, in about 10 minutes, somebody gets a fucking fever. Both of Jackson Pollock's parents' families were those westward settler types, so let's go back. And if you're wondering why we're going back so far into his parents' lives, you obviously don't recognize how badly your parents fucked you up when you were a kid, accidentally or otherwise, and their craziness came from somewhere. So let's put ourselves in that time, no matter how awful that time happened to be, and let's find out how Jackson's parents met. Stella Mae McClure was born in 1876 in the town of Mount Ayer, Iowa, to your typical settler farmer parents. Booming metropolis, that Mount Ayer. Stella came from a long line of these really hearty, thick-ankled, no-shit-taking German women. There was epic amounts of not fucking around with these women. They were motivated, and they made decisions. Stella was her parents' first child, and growing up, she took very quickly to the female farm duties of the time. Cooking, jarring and canning food so it'll keep for long periods of time, cleaning. It's exactly the gender-dividing roles in a farm that you would expect. 
Stella's parents then went on to have a thousand and seventeen more children, and Stella was forced to take on a motherly role very early on in order to help care for her younger siblings. So let's go through this brood really quickly. By the time Stella was five, she had two younger sisters, Anna Myrtle and Mary Elizabeth. This was a period of time when you named your kid Anna Myrtle. This was a terrible time to be alive. In 1885, by the time Stella was 10, she also had two younger brothers named Samuel Cameron and David Leslie. We don't need to know too much about the boys, except to know that Stella's parents were very excited to finally get boys to help out with the farm, because the McClure farm was failing quickly. Back then, having boys was everything, because it meant labor in the fields. It was an extra so many acres of farm that could be handled, and a boy could farm more than he could eat. Society had set up boys to be way more self-sufficient, so there was less of a financial strain uh, with having boys as associated with having girls. Then two years later, the parents have Euphonia Isabel, who everyone called Phony. And poor Phony was a bit of a problem, because the parents were really banking on another boy. The farm was struggling, and they needed the labor. So in 1890, Stella's parents try for one more boy. They really think it's going to be the next boy that'll help save the farm. How crazy is that? They are basically playing roulette right now with their kid's gender. But no matter what the new baby's gender was, with another mouth to feed, Stella's mom would have to take a more active role in farming just so the farm could survive. So it was assumed that Stella would take uh, a more active role as the primary caregiver of the children. She's like 14 years old at this point. But Stella doesn't get a little brother. When the baby is born, it's another little sister named Martha Ellen. It's cool, though. It's the late 1800s. We're going to get rid of a kid pretty quickly. It's around that time that Phony contracted a very bad fever from who the hell knows where. And the fever just gets worse and worse. And one day, Phony starts to go into seizures. Stella had no idea what to do, so she tries to hold Phony tight to stop the seizures, which finally stop when the two-year-old Phony dies in Stella's arms, because everything was terrible back then. The McClure farm was constantly losing money until the day came when they were forced to sell it and they moved to Tingley, Iowa. Think about what just happened. This is a period of time when people would let their businesses fold before they let their daughters work in the fields because, I don't know, their uterus would fall out or something. This is insanity. But at least Tingley, Iowa is a little more of a legit town. Stella has fewer farm chores now, and she can explore a little, and she concentrates more on school. And now Stella is going to a school that introduces her to more worldly concepts. It's an actual establishment for learning. It's not six kids in a shack with a half a book about how to tie knots. And because it was a bigger town, more people traveled through Tingley. So Stella was meeting people from all over the world, and she started to realize how much more there is, how many more experiences there are out there, and she wants in. Through her teen years, Stella learns that she likes the finer things in life and, and doing the things that the more rich and aristocratic women do. So she learns to sew and paint watercolors, and she was really interested in Victorian-style decorations. She really wanted to be an artist or be in a creative field. She didn't want to be a pioneer farmer's wife. Stella wanted to be a lady. Everything about being a pioneer farmer's wife sucked, and she knew it back then. In 1895, when she was almost 20, Stella started to get a little restless, and she wanted something different. Maybe a move, maybe a family. At a time when most women are married by 18, she was glaringly single, and that tugged at her. Before this, Stella didn't really show any signs of wanting to date or meet boys, which I think makes sense because she's really busy spending all of her time taking care of 147 dusty eight-year-olds. 
And as luck would have it, or maybe because she's just looking now, she meets a handsome young man named Leroy. Leroy McCoy was born on February 25th, 1877. Guys, we are like nine minutes into this series, and we already have a white Iowan Leroy from the 1870s. I was so excited when I read that. I was like, get the fuck out of here. Hey, look, I understand Leroy isn't just a black guy's name from circa 1983. I get that. I looked it up. There's a bunch of white Leroys in France. Only it's probably pronounced Leroy, and we're not in France. We're in a time and a place in America where they didn't even have the term white trash yet because everybody was white trash. We were a country to the brim with people who, if they were alive today, would put it in an above-ground pool and pay for it with a credit card. Yeah, no, I'm gonna get in. I just don't want to spill my beer or get my mullet wet and tell them kids to stop splashing. Look, it, just, it was just a name I wasn't expecting to see. And then one sentence later, I read that at some point in his life, Leroy shortened his name to just Roy. And I was like, no, fuck that. You can't start a story with 1870s white Leroy and then just take that away. His mama call him Clay, I'ma call him Clay. He is getting the full coming to America treatment. You are Leroy, damn it. In the McCoys, they were a moderately successful family. Leroy was the youngest child, and he had two older brothers and an older sister named Nina. Shortly after Leroy was born, his mother began to show symptoms of chronic fatigue and she was losing weight. She had tuberculosis. Not good news. At that point, tuberculosis was called the consumption. It's sort of like how we call diabetes the sugar or the betus. Diabetes. So let's talk about tuberculosis. As a species, we have a, a, an odd amount of relationship baggage with tuberculosis. We shouldn't be together, but we just can't quit one another. No, that's not, not this, this guy. You're not, gonna listen to me. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. I gave you chances after fucking chances of taking bitches to fairs. This is all you do. Shut man. up and listen to me. Guys, when you're giving chances after chances and he keeps bringing bitches to fairs, you are not in a healthy relationship. As such was our relationship with tuberculosis. Tuberculosis was evidenced to have killed human beings as far back as about 9,000 years ago. It's primarily a lung disease that causes fever, chills, night sweats, and fatigue. It results in a prolonged cough, chest pain, night sweats, chronic illness, and scarring of the upper lobes of the lung, which can produce the bloody cough, and rapid weight loss. You basically have the disease until you waste away, hence the name consumption, because it looked like people were being eaten alive from the inside, which is, I guess, is exactly what was happening. Okay, this is how much it sucked to be alive back then. In the 19th century, tuberculosis was thought to be a romantic disease. It was called the White Plague, and everybody wanted tuberculosis because there were so many awful and sudden ways to die back then. At least TB gave you time to put your affairs in order. Guys, people wanted this disease. Tuberculosis kept bringing bitches to fairs, and we stuck around because our problem is that we just love too damn hard. I gave you chances after fucking chances of everything. One of the public guidelines that was out at the time was to quarantine sick family members away from the healthy ones because TB spread uh, through airborne cough mist. So not only was everybody's breath disgusting, but it could also kill you. But the problem was, it was possible to spread tuberculosis before the cough started and you knew that you had it. And that's exactly what happened in 1878 when Leroy's older sister Nina, who was three at the time, also began to show symptoms of tuberculosis. And what's insane is, because he's only two years old, Leroy has to stay in the house. He can't go wander around. So Leroy gets to watch his family slowly die of tuberculosis. And on February 28th, 1879, three days after Leroy turns three years old, Nina dies of TB. 
Then Leroy's mother begins to rapidly lose weight and she starts to cough up blood. And a few months later, Leroy watched his mother die from tuberculosis as well. I feel like everybody thought this was a good way to die because they only got to see the people with functional tuberculosis in public. It was people having little bloody coughs and it was silk kerchief and they were like, "Mm, pardon me. But when it got really bad, everybody was quarantined, so you didn't really see the end, which was fucking horrifying. Okay, now it's just Leroy, his two older brothers, and they were just on the cusp of being old enough to work the farm, and his father. And by the time Leroy turns three, his dad is like, alright, I can't handle this, I am just trying to survive, and I need to worry about keeping the oldest two alive who can help me do that, so raising a toddler isn't in the cards. He just, like, did a wartime hospital triage situation and looked at Leroy and thought, yeah, like, that one's probably not going to make it, and he just gives up. So his dad just gives Leroy to a couple who weren't related to him, were kind of poor, and were considered, quote, a bit on the scruffy side. Then he just takes the other boys and fucks off to Missouri. That sounds like the first people who were willing to take a free kid got to have one. I don't think he did any interviews, and there certainly wasn't a background check done. Leroy was adopted by James Madison Pollock, who is described as single-minded and ruthless in his ambition, and Lizzie Pollock, who is considered a, quote, religious fanatic. So Leroy was basically adopted by Daniel Day-Lewis from There Will Be Blood and my grandmother. I drink your milkshake. In its 1879 in America, we loved Jesus back then. Imagine how religious you have to be for people in 1879 Iowa to be like, yeah, 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 you need to dial it back a little bit. And now that Leroy is adopted, that's how the last name Pollock enters our story. New Dad, a.k.a. James, is an absolute working machine. If he's up, he's working, and he is paying Leroy no mind. New Mom, a.k.a. Lizzie, she's off doing the Lord's work somewhere, so nobody's really raising Leroy or talking to him or teaching him. You know, parenting stuff. They're just keeping him alive. So Leroy is just kind of wandering around, not learning how to communicate or connect with another human being on an emotional level. And by the time Leroy turned 10, James subcontracted Leroy's farmhand services out to other farmers. He basically pimped out his kid as labor for hire. It wasn't that he hated Leroy, it was just he was so ambitious, he couldn't leave a potential revenue stream on the table. So Leroy Pollock continued to have a shitty childhood and adolescence of farming and not talking, until one day in 1895, he meets a nice girl named Stella McClure. Guys, we have our meet-cute. Leroy and Stella, they start spending a lot of time together, hanging out, and soon after that, they began dating seriously. And they were still living in Tingley, Iowa, when Stella's sister, Anna Myrtle, she came uh, back home to visit from college, and everyone could immediately see that she was dying of tuberculosis, which finally killed her in 1898. I felt like I was reading TB porn. So many people died of tuberculosis in this story. At this point, Leroy and Stella had been dating for about three years. This is a time where you got married to somebody as soon as you realized you wouldn't kill each other because you needed somebody else in life to help keep you alive. Then in 1902, Stella finds out that she's pregnant and she tells Leroy that he has no choice but to marry her and legitimize the baby. Leroy didn't want a family yet, but what can you do at this point? This is Tingley, Iowa, 1902. You can't just bail out. And Leroy's not that type of guy anyway. 
So Leroy is in. It took seven years and an accidental pregnancy for him to be in, and it's not the level of excitement you would hope for, but Leroy's in. And on Christmas Day, Stella and Leroy have a son named Charles. It's our first Pollock boy, and I assure you, more are coming at a very rapid clip. In 1903, Stella and Leroy get married, and they take little Charles, and they make their way west to start a life in Cody, Wyoming. I don't know why you'd keep going west. I just imagine it got shittier and shittier the farther you got, but it wasn't my call. And Cody, Wyoming was straight up the Wild West in 1903. It was founded only like seven years prior, and they just straight up moved there. I won't go to a new restaurant for three weeks after it starts. These people just moved to the middle of nowhere a few years after an entire town got started. Yeah, it was a different time. Cody, Wyoming was named after one of its founders, William Frederick Cody, who you might know better by the nickname Buffalo Bill. And Cody, Wyoming was also full of mountain lions. Your town has fucking mountain lions in it. They would just stroll around. This is so far before shit got cool that mountain lions weren't even afraid of us yet. I read a bunch of old newspaper stories about mountain, uh, mountain lion attacks from around then, and I was going to read one on here because I thought the level of just unnecessarily brutal details in the journalism back then was kind of funny, and then I realized we didn't need to add to the body count in this episode. Leroy ended up finding work in Cody, but the jobs were like surveying land and mining, jobs that would require him to be away for long stretches. And Stella was at home taking care of Charles and, and trying to build a, a life for the family. But Leroy was annoyed because Stella would keep spending money. She was like, yeah, we need to actually build a th the thing for our child. It's, it's great that Leroy can survive on can of beans and fox piss, but that's not the life that Stella wants for the kids. But they never talked about their issues with how the money was spent, and it was just this constant undercurrent of simmering conflict. Instead, they just kept popping out kids. In 1904, the Pollocks have a second son named Jay, who they called Marvin. <laughs> So now it's Charles and Marvin slash Jay. The names in this story were exhausting. I didn't even tell you that Leroy's father, James, was actually called Matt by everyone. It was just stupid and annoying, so I cut it out. In 1907, they have a third son named Frank. And then in 1909, they have a fourth son named Sanford, who they called Sandy. So between 1902 and 1909, Stella has four children. That absolutely horrifies me. Do you know how bad the obstetrics and gynecological medicine was back then, so many women died in childbirth. And sometime around 1910, Leroy begins to drink heavily, and Leroy never really stops drinking heavily after this. I don't think the drinking was really that surprising. It was a really grim existence, and at the time, alcoholism was the primary cause of death in men who lived in Cody, Wyoming. In 1911, Stella called it. She had enough of the cold-ass winter in Wyoming and told the family that they were moving. And Leroy said, all right. But before they could leave, Stella found out that she was pregnant. So the move was on hold. And Stella and Leroy sat back and think, you know what? We've got four boys. Even if statistically two of the boys die from falling down a well or whatever. Maybe Frank dies, maybe Marvin slash Jay. At this point, it'll be okay. We'll still be able to support ourselves and have enough kids to, you know, support us later in life. So they thought, you know what would be nice? It would be nice to have a little girl. And ooh, were they excited about having a daughter. That's how shitty it was to be a woman. It took having four boys in seven years before they could even want to begin to think about having a little girl. 
And on January 28, 1912, Stella gave birth to a baby who, as soon as its head came out, was described as, quote, an alarmingly dark bulge. Its head was a deep blue, the color of a bad bruise. The baby had its umbilical cord wrapped around its neck, and nobody knew for how long. And the baby wasn't breathing, and in Stella's heart, she feared that the baby was stillborn. Then the doctor took the baby and slapped it a bunch of times. Nothing. And then slapped it a bunch more times, and the baby started to cry. Guys, I can't believe I get to do this again. Medicine! Child abuse saves babies. And the Pollocks had a healthy baby boy. Not a girl. They were bummed about that part. They really wanted a girl this time. World meet under-oxygenated, oddly gender-problematic for his time, living in a barren wasteland, Paul Jackson Pollock, who the family called Jackson and then shortened it to Jack. I hate how this family names people. But it's still time for the family to move. Stella still wanted out. There is a lot of moving in this episode. It's going to be hard to track, and it's annoying, and I know that, but just imagine what it was like to be living it. On November 28th, 1912, when Jackson was 10 months old, the family sold everything they owned and got on a train to Southern California. During that trip, Stella didn't want to breastfeed on the train, so Jackson was denied quite a bit of nourishment. Apparently, he didn't eat for a while. And I'll save everyone a lot of boring details, but Southern California didn't work out because Leroy couldn't find a job. Then he got mumps and the measles, which left him unable to have more kids. So that's a pretty rough trip for Leroy. He's still unemployed and now he's sterile. So the lesson here, uh, parents, is vaccinate your kids. That's why we don't get measles and mumps anymore. Stop watching YouTube videos. We know that vaccinations don't cause autism. Vaccinate your goddamn kids. And, and don't dress your twins in matching outfits past the age of two. You're the only one who thinks it's cute. They're going to be roommates until they're... 35 and meet other twin roommates at a convention and they're going to get married and all four of them are going to live together and it's going to be weird and it's going to be all your fault. So anyway, the Pollock family bounces around for a while. They're trying to find a home base. Stella knows Jackson was the last baby she'd ever have, so she really babies him. Even the family thought it was a bit much. She would keep him in these weird baby petticoats until he was like three. And in September of 1913, the Pollock family really needed to settle. They, they needed roots, but finding work was tough for Leroy. He did have one skill, though. Since he was pimped out by his adopted dad to be a farmer since childhood, he really knows how to farm. So Stella and Leroy decided to finance the purchase of a 20-acre farm in between Phoenix and Tempe, Arizona for Leroy to farm. They bought a farm in Phoenix, the desert. This feels like an egregiously dumb decision. So the whole family up and moves to the farm in Arizona. And Stella was thrilled. She is now a farmer's wife. The very thing she always never wanted to be. And she's functionally been a mother since she was like five and had to take care of her younger siblings. And now she's got a basketball team worth of kids all on her own. And Leroy didn't even want the first one. He just forgot to pull out. Now he's married, also with a basketball team, and they love their kids, but neither are 100% thrilled with their situation. Because they bought a desert farm, the Pollocks needed to constantly have it irrigated. They would have to pay for a guy to come by and pump water to substitute for the, oh, I don't know, the complete lack of rainfall in the Phoenix Tempe area. But when you have to pay for irrigation in a desert, your profit margin starts to shrink in a farm too sweet. 
They had farm animals, and the Pollocks also had a dog named Jip, who I believe was part Pitbull and part Collie. Good old Jip, he was extremely loyal to the family, and incredibly violent to anyone and anything else that crossed his path, including killing a bunch of animals and other neighbors' dogs. One neighbor said, quote, Jip got into it with a stray. It was the most horrible thing I'd ever witnessed. I, I've got to be honest, if you told me the story of Jackson Pollock started in the Wild West with a guy named Leroy who had a bunch of kids in a pit bull, I'm not sure I would have believed you, yet here we are. The family also had horses. Uh, one time, Sandy couldn't walk for three weeks after he was kicked by a horse because he was, quote, getting too familiar with it. Sandy, buddy, I'm going to need you to pull your hand back real, real slow-like, okay? If you keep on... No, oh, not again. Stella's going to be madder than a wampus cat in a rainstorm over this one. So let's talk about the layout of the Phoenix Farm. Outside of their irrigated land, the farm is surrounded by arid, hot, terrible desert topography and cliffs that went into a deep gully, and nearby there was also a tuberculosis sanitarium. Tuberculosis is making a comeback in this story. If your formative years include a constant barrage of things that will kill you immediately outside of your comfort zone, that could be a problem later on. So Jackson's early life was pretty much limited to the farm. He didn't have a whole lot of contact with the outside world. And that may not be that big of a problem if your home life is, let's call it, healthy. Now that we're on the farm, let's talk about how the Pollock family dynamic is developing. Leroy immediately threw himself into farming. It is just like riding a bike, but more like if your dad got paid by a guy to make you ride a bike. And Leroy was a fantastic farmer. He was out from dawn until dark, but he wasn't really that good at the business of farming or of really being a father outside of that. And Stella, she had no interest in anything farm-related, so she didn't help out. Which, at the time, she's keeping these kids clothed, fed, she's keeping the family unit together while Leroy plants crops in the desert. I, I kind of get it that she also doesn't want to be out there farming, too. But neither Stella nor Leroy are talking about their frustrations with the situation, with each other. It just is the way it is, and their resentment is growing and growing. Both of them are distant from each other, distant from their kids. Everyone is just kind of existing on this shitty farm. And to make things even more awkward, Stella and Leroy created these huge divisions between the boys. And by divisions, I'm legitimately talking about NBA, NFL-style divisions. Okay, this is a little weird. The older boys, Charles and Marvin slash Jay, are referred to as, quote, high steps. They have the most responsibility, but also the most privileges. They also work with Leroy the most, so at least he actually talks to them. Because the family is in survival mode. The high-step kids are just, they're just more appreciated and they're seen as less of a burden. The younger boys, Jackson and Sandy, are called, quote, low steps. They work in the home with, you know, with mom and they're doing the easier jobs and they have very little responsibility. And Frank? Frank is just sort of stuck in the middle and he doesn't really get a step name. And as you would imagine, that affects Frank later in life. So the high-step kids resent the younger kids because they don't have to do any of the work, and the younger kids, they resent the high-step kids because they at least had a relationship with their parents. But Jackson was really singled out. Not only was he the youngest, but he was also the baby, so he, he wasn't really allowed to do any work around the farm, and the older kids fucking hated that. 
Anytime farm chores were being allocated to the kids, Jackson would always want to be included just to spend time with his family, and he would say, I will too, I will too, which the family eventually turned into a mocking chant, and anytime he'd say it, they would go, I will too, I will too. So he would just go and play with Jip and cry. He was like four years old at the time. This is terrible. Even years later, his brothers would be like, yeah, we were all sort of dicks to him at that point. So at this early age, we see Jackson start to become an introvert, not by choice, but because nobody really talks to him, even his family, and he's a highly emotional child. So he's just wandering around the farm, sad, just him and Jip. Jip's his buddy, at least he still has Jip. It's a, it's a boy and his dog situation happening, I guess. Stella and Leroy also weren't taking the time or the energy to teach the kids anything about life or rear them at all. They weren't instilling values or, or, or explaining anything to them. I think part of it is that both of them were surrounded by so much death growing up that as long as the kids are alive and healthy, what, what else do you want from them? They never explained to any of the kids what sex was. And I'm not just talking about Jackson. They never told the older kids. No one was told about it. And I'm not a parent that I know of, but the where do babies come from conversation, I feel like it's one that would come up, especially if you're popping out a kid every 14 months. Frank would later say that the kids learned about sex by watching, quote, roosters and hens, dogs and bitches, boars and sows, studs and mares. Sexual activity was everywhere, unquote. So this is kind of why I think the Sandy getting kicked by a horse story was a little hand jobby in nature. Maybe he just wanted a close up. This was porn for the kids. And I know horses are kind of coming up a lot in this podcast. I assure you that's not by design. I just think horses were around more back then, so there was bound to be more weird stories. But from a parenting perspective, I am unsure that watching farm animals is the best way for a kid to learn about sex. I don't know if you've ever seen horses having sex, but it is legitimately horrifying. I, uh, I grew up near Saratoga Racetrack, uh, which is in New York, and one time when I was a kid, we were at a horse farm, and I saw a farmer stud a horse, and they used this, like, giant fake padded mount that apparently looks like the ass end of a horse, and the male hops on and just goes to town, and it bites the mount really hard, and it's super violent. And attached underneath is like a, it's, it's like a giant farm fleshlight, and then attached to that, it looks like a, a giant loose condom hanging off the end. And as a nine-year-old, I did not need to see a horse fill that thing up. There was just so much cum. It was awful. It, to this day, I have never ridden a horse. I understand that people think they're great, but my inner nine-year-old is totally fine on two legs. I think subconsciously, every time I see a horse, I'm afraid it's gonna fuck me. <laughs> and I, I know that's not a rational fear. I get it, but I also don't like spiders. So, Jackson really looked up to his oldest brother, Charles. Charles loved art and was planning on becoming an artist. He would cut out pictures from magazines with Stella, and he was always drawing. So, of course, that made Jackson want to be an artist even more. And for his part, Charles later said that he basically ignored Jackson for most of his childhood. And this isn't your typical, I'm going to ignore my little brother stuff. Charles legitimately ignored him. The only other person in the family who really spent time with Jackson was Sandy, the other low step. Stella saw the sibling bond that was growing between the two of them, so she capitalized on it and gave Sandy a new chore, which was being in charge of Jackson. Boom! Just like that, mother duties alleviated. And of course, as soon as you make a thing a chore, a kid is going to immediately hate it, and that's what happened. 
so now Sandy is resenting the time he has to spend with Jackson. He slacked off in his duties so badly one day that when they were screwing around, Sandy chopped off the tip of one of Jackson's fingers with an axe. You know, typical farm stuff. Sandy felt really bad about what happened with Jackson's finger, and that would create a bond between the two of them that would last a very long time. Because at the end of the day, Sandy saw what would happen if he didn't keep an eye on Jackson. And Jackson is clearly a scared, sad, and more or less helpless child who's learning that the only person who cares about his everyday well-being is Sandy. And of, of course, Jip. Jip always cares. And Stella, she had no real interest in disciplining the kids at all, so she just didn't do it. What she would do was, if you messed up or if she was angry with you, she would passively cut you out of family activities but not say why. Again, no talking, just passive-aggressive parenting. So if there was pie for dessert and Stella was upset with you, everybody would get a piece of pie and you wouldn't. The reason wasn't explained, nobody said anything, you were just not involved, which is wild. Later, when the boys were older, they said Stella would manipulate them to get them to always demand her attention, her affection, but she would never quite give it to them, always making sure she was in control. And as much as Stella was useless with the boys' emotional needs, she was a crazy person when it came to other people being involved with them in any way. She wouldn't let anyone come near the kids, no doctors, neighbors, and she never brought the kids to church. Back then, not taking your kids to church was a scandal. So because of the lack of exposure to other people, the Pollock kids, especially Jackson, were scared of any contact with strangers. They didn't know how to act in public. They were like a bunch of emotionally repressed feral children running around. Then in 1916, there was a financial disaster in the U.S., World War I, it opened up globalization a lot, which had an impact on farming markets because there was more commercially available options globally. So that made it even harder to survive as a desert farmer. And another issue was that Stella's desire for a bigger and better life was creating issues with the family's finances. She was making unnecessary expenditures, uh, she wasn't saving for bad times like these, and wouldn't do anything to make money, like sell baked goods. Instead, Stella was actively pursuing a life outside of farming. Stella is done with the situation. She fucking hates farms. And she started sending away for brochures for cities in California. And one day out of the blue, Stella tells Leroy that if they don't leave this horrendous desert life, she was leaving him and taking the boys. Part of me wants to say good for you for taking control of your life, but you should probably have been having these conversations for a while. So on May 22nd, 1917, when Jackson was five, the family put the house up for auction. They also sold off the cows, pigs, horses, and the rest of the family's porn collection, and Stella told everyone that they were moving to Chico, California. And if you're from L.A., you know about Chico because everybody has a cousin that goes to Chico State. Chico, California was founded in 1860. Uh, Chico almost never existed as a California city because it was originally inhabited by the Konkau Maidu native people. You know, the people who already lived there. But don't worry, America is coming. Back in 1850, the California legislature legalized the forced servitude of native peoples by white settlers with the quote, act for the government and protection of Indians. So, hey, at least we've always been consistently full of shit when it came to naming laws. That law was later modified and expanded in 1860, and the new law, quote, 
authorized a complete system of slavery without any of the checks and wholesome restraints of slavery as ever was devised. Just chew on that for a second. That quote is utter insanity. Everything worked out, though. Eventually, Chico was done with the Congo Maidu people and in 1863 framed them for a murder that none of them committed. And under escort of 23 armed soldiers, the 461 Konkao Maidu people that were left were forced to march 100 miles to a reservation. 277 made it. So Chico has an awful history. But that horrible story is great news for the Pollocks. They have a better chance of successfully farming in Chico because it actually rained there, and now the land is freed up from those pesky locals. In Picasso's origin story, we talked about Picasso's dad, Jose, getting sent to A Coruña by Tio Salvador and him treating it like it was this grand Napoleonic exile. I, I still miss Jose. But that's exactly what's happening here. Leroy is treating the move to Chico as if it is a Napoleonic exile. And I get it. It probably sucks to be in Chico in 1917. He's about 100 years before Cesar Chavez weekend at Chico State. And, oh man, everybody's cousins come out for that weekend. It's like a three-day party. Instead, Leroy withdrew even more. He was sulky and he threw himself into his farming. Sort of. The problem was the the farm that the Pollocks bought was a fruit farm, even though Leroy had no clue how to grow fruit. They had peach trees and apricot trees, but Stella said this was a spot, so Leroy said okay. But then Leroy also showed no interest in learning how to cultivate fruit trees, so throwing himself into farming is really a euphemism for throwing himself into drinking. But don't worry, all of this becomes irrelevant almost immediately, because neither Leroy nor Stella did any inspection of the Chico farm, and in 1918, they found out that their farm was useless and they got fucked over on the land deal. So the farm was a strip farm. And from what I can gather, strip farms are divided into long and narrow strips rather than squares. And it helps for hillier, uneven plots and better control of land sloping and topography issues. And it allows for a more even growth or something. I, I think. I, I really don't know. I sort of glazed over at some point. I mean, our country's farmers, I really appreciate your work, but nobody really cares how you do it. But we do care about the fact that the previous farmer screwed up somehow, and half of the fruit farm had alkaline soil, and that made one of the strips unfarmable. So the Pollocks basically bought the land on spec and had absolutely no understanding of whether or not it was even worth the shit. And on top of that, in 1918, World War I ended. American soldiers came back home, and they were, they were also farming to sustain themselves. So the crop demand dropped because the decreased farmer-to-person ratio, or however you calculate that. So not only do the Pollocks not get Cesar Chavez weak in a Chico state, but they also have more or less worthless farmland. And kids are smart. Kids know when their parents are fighting or when things are stressful, but no one's telling the kids anything, and, and it's just a constant tension in the house. And if you're wondering when all of this stress, not communicating, epic financial failures, when all of this would start to tear this family apart, I would say now is when you should really start paying attention. But you're going to have to do it when we pick the story back up next episode. Oh, and speaking of next episode, let's talk about episode timing. Um, I'm going to try to put these out weekly, but it may end up being around like a week to ten days.
Oh, and the Gertrude Stein cleanup. Uh, last episode, I think I credited Gertrude Stein with developing stream of consciousness writing generally, which is a little bit broader of a net than I meant to cast. It's more accurate to say that her and James Joyce are credited with uh, developing stream of consciousness writing within prose. So it's a small correction, but whatever, facts matter, and honestly, it's been bugging the shit out of me all week. So that's it. Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, if you like the show, please throw me five stars on whatever podcast app you're using. Uh, it really helps get the show in front of new listeners and really helps get the word out. Uh, thanks again, and I'll talk to everybody later.